the basic interventionist notion of causation, I think, is a very kind of weak or minimal notion. All that it really involves is the idea that there's some way of wiggling the candidate cause such that the uh, candidate effect will change. Well, obviously, um, you, in many, many contexts, you want to know a lot more than that. I just want to say, if you're if you're a philosopher or even someone in another discipline, this this is a this whole complex of questions and issues is a really uh, is it's kind of fruitful and interesting place to be from my point of view. In my own case, uh, the reason why I went into philosophy to begin with was I thought that it kind of gave me a license to stick my nose into all sorts of different things. And that's what I've done uh, in my career, and I found it on balance very, you know, very, very satisfying. This is Brain Inspired. The nature of causality and causal explanation has occupied philosophers since there were philosophers. What does it mean when some thing or event or process causes some effect? Hello, everyone. I'm Paul, and my guest today is James Woodward, who's a recently retired professor from the Department of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Pittsburgh. Jim has written extensively not about what causation is per se, but about what causation does. He begins with a minimal notion of causality, often called interventionism, which is simply the idea that if you were to intervene on a cause, or wiggle the cause, as Jim sometimes says, uh, then it would make a difference to the effect. From that simple notion, things quickly get more complicated, with questions about how reliable a cause is, how many different ways we can explore a cause, how to treat causes and effects at different levels of granularity, how much of some single cause we can attribute to an effect with multiple causes, and so on. Much of that work was done in Jim's 2003 book, Making Things Happen, A Theory of Causal Explanation. And in his most recent book, Causation with a Human Face, he uses the interventionist framework of causality to expand on those ideas, and in particular to explore the relationship between how we should think about causality, making claims about causality under the interventionist framework, and how we humans actually do think about causality, how we make judgments about and reason about causality in the world, our causal cognition. For Jim, these usually separate lines of research have a lot to teach each other. So we discuss those ideas, some of the other major and minor themes in the new book, and of course much more. In the show notes, I link to both books that I mentioned. Find them at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 145. To my Patreon supporters and students in my NeuroAI course, I salute you for your support and generosity. Uh, I recognize it's not the default to take action to support a podcast, and I feel a deep gratitude to you. Thank you. Here's Jim. Jim, welcome back, old friend. Well, thank you, sir. I, I say old friend, of course, because this is actually take two of our attempt at recording a podcast episode due to yours truly's um, 
uh, what's a euphemism challenge, uh, ongoing challenges as a uh, podcast uh, creator, perhaps. So I really appreciate you doing this again. <laughs> and we won't repeat verbatim what we did last time, but we'll see. Okay, sounds great. So your new book, uh, Causation with a Human Face, follows uh, almost a decade after your what I would call now classic book, um, Making Things Happen. And in some sense, uh, the new book, Causation with a Human Face, um, is a continuation or an expansion of what you did in Making Things Happen. So in Making Things Happen, you introduced your interventionist um, framework for approaching causation. Um, and you revisit that in Causation with a Human Face. But then you go on to do um, things that you alluded to, at least, and, and did a little bit in Making Things Happen, um, where you take this functional perspective, functionalist perspective uh, on causation. And in that regard, you focus on connecting an account of um, causation itself, what causation, quote unquote, is, with how we do causation, something called causal cognition, how we make judgments about causation uh, and reason about causation in the world. Could you elaborate? Um, maybe you know we're going to have to talk about what interventionist uh, the interventionist. In, <laughs> we're going to have to talk about what the interventionist approach is. But maybe before that, um, can you you know elaborate on this functionalist approach and and why you chose it? Why you think it's an important way to proceed? I'd be happy to do that. Uh, so to begin with, the functionalist approach. Uh, it's just the idea that we we think causal we engage in causal reasoning because it's useful for us. In other words, causal thinking is functional. Uh, and I claim that that imposes various kinds of constraints on how um, we as philosophers or inquirers in general uh, should think about causation. So that's the, the basic picture of the, uh, uh, the functional aspect of causation. Um, you, you alluded to um, the idea that my view is, is an interventionist view, and, and, and that's right. It's a view that connects uh, causal claims with uh, claims about what would happen if you were to uh, get in there and manipulate things. So if C causes E, then if you manipulate C in the right way or you intervene on C in the right way, then E will change. And that's at least an important part of my story about the functionality of causation. Causal knowledge is functional for us because it encodes information that we can use to manipulate and control. So I know that uh, there are other people that have this kind of functionalist approach, like Udaya Pearl and so on, who, who've been working on this. But but the history of the philosophy of causation hasn't really followed that so much, right? It, it's been much more concerned with sort of the metaphysical what causation is part of the question, um, you know, going back to Hume and, of course, you know, Aristotle and uh, all those good old philosophers. Um, but in, you know, you allude to this a little bit in making things happen as well, but uh, you spend more time on it in your recent book on the, the difference between epistemology and metaphysics and why you think that there shouldn't be necessarily such a difference. And in my view, you almost... Um, it could be interpreted as if you say, well, as if it's you saying, well, I don't really want to talk about metaphysics because it's not important. But at the same time, you're kind of saying they should be talked about in the same vein. So what, why do you hate metaphysics? What's that about? 
Um, I don't know that I w would say that I hate metaphysics, but uh, what, what I do think is this, and I try to say this clearly in the book, that the pursuit of um, an inquiry into the so-called metaphysics of causation that completely neglects the epistemology or the methodology of how we find out about causal relationships is not going to be very fruitful. And I think there is uh, at least some tendency in uh, people who work on the analytical metaphysics of causation to completely neglect the uh, epistemological uh, side of things. So in other words, the idea is that metaphysics is one thing, uh, epistemology is something uh, completely different. It's a consequence of my functional way of thinking about causation that those two things, epistemology and metaphysics, should not be uh, taken as completely separate. Because according to me, um, we're interested in causal relations because this is useful information for us. And that means uh, that we have to be thinking about causation in such a way that um, there are ways of finding out whether causal relationships uh, in the world obtain or not. And so it, it, from the functionalist point of view, it's a kind of constraint on any adequate theory of causation that it should link up with the procedures that we actually have for finding out which causal relationships obtain in the world. So metaphysics, not useless, but perhaps less useful for the way we actually do causation in the world. I, well, I, what I do think is, uh, so, so from my point of view, there are kind of two projects associated with causation or causal reasoning that I find interesting. One, as I say in the book, is a normative project. How should we think or reason causally? And you find um, th this normative aspect of things certainly addressed in the philosophical literature, but also in um, li literature on machine learning, where there's a lot of interest in, mm. you know, how you can learn about causal relationships from, for example, observational data. Um, there's a flourishing tradition in tr uh, statistics and econometrics that is also normative. Um, so what I hope is that the book makes some contribution to that, those kinds of normative concerns. I think that's a completely valuable and interesting project. And then the other uh, issue, which I find uh, intellectually very interesting, is how, in fact, do we do it? Um, as a descriptive matter, uh, how is it that people think causally? And how is it that when they think causally, at least to some substantial amount of time, they're, 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 they're successful in um, uh, identifying causal relationships? So I guess it would be a fair thing to say about the book that it focuses on those two projects, what I call the normative and descriptive, and um, shall we say is at least kind of quietist about uh, uh, what the underlying metaphysical story is. And that quietism is completely um, uh, intentional. It's uh, not that uh, <laughs> it's not that I ha it doesn't occur to me that some people out there think that uh, one should provide a metaphysical story. Uh, I, I deliberately uh, refrain from trying to provide one, at least of any very uh, elaborate sort. Well, I mean, being quiet can be pretty loud. So, have have you received pushback from the metaphysicians out there that you're that you're not uh, paying enough attention or doing enough service toward metaphysics? 
we're not going to harp on metaphysics for long, I promise. But okay, okay well, good. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, certainly. And even in connection with the first book, um, it yeah. was a, a kind of ongoing complaint that I really hadn't provided uh, an underlying metaphysics of causation. So, for example, I talk about um, what would happen uh, to one variable if you intervene and change the value of another, but people have said to me, well, okay, but what, you know, what are the truth makers for those uh, claims about what would happen if you were to intervene? Uh, you know, what's the underlying uh, story about, uh, uh, you know, what's going on at a mes metaphysical level? Are you committed to powers or dispositions as your account of causation or maybe uh, relations of necessitation between universals or maybe something else? And uh, I'm, I have to say that I just don't find um, uh, the focus uh, 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 on, on those kinds of issues. And, and there's certainly a lot of it uh, in the uh, metaphysics of causation literature. I just don't think it's been fruitful uh, in comparison with these other kinds of issues, both the normative ones and the descriptive ones about how, in fact, we do it, where it seems to me there's been a lot of... Um, really recognizable progress uh, made. We've learned a lot of new things there. And um, I don't think that there's been, frankly, anything that is comparable in the, uh, uh, the analytical metaphysics of uh, uh, causation. Well, you used the word fruitful there, uh, which I believe you use in the, in the book as well. And that is part of the functionalist approach. And I, I think that, you know, maybe that's one reason why at least from my perspective, in, in the neuroscience world, and I guess in the biological world, uh, a lot of people have really embraced this interventionist brand of causation because it lends itself well to actual experimentation. I know it doesn't require an experiment because you can um, infer causation from observable data as well. But the so maybe maybe just in terms of another um, background to your approach, uh, you mentioned that earlier that. You know, people uh, often are causally correct or fruitful in their causal judgments. And mm -hmm. this has to do with the um, rational approach that you also take in thinking that there, there's a normative aspect there where people are rationally approaching judgments judgments of uh, causation. I don't know if you have more to say about, about that. I'm not sure I have a question. I just wanted to make sure we, we got that out there because I, I guess on the other side of the coin, um, there are a lot of people who focus on our foibles. Uh, I'm part of that group. I think I go both ways, but but you're you're more focused on on the rational, um, fruitful, correct uh, judgments of causation, right? That's true. That's true. So, uh, just to say a little bit more about that, I I said a moment ago that I was interested both in normative issues about how we ought to reason causally and descriptive issues about how we in fact do. But I see these as closely interconnected uh, in just the way that you described. That is, I, I think it's true, and I realize this is controversial, but I think it's true as a matter of empirical fact that at least a substantial amount of the time people do reason in normatively appropriate ways. And so looking at normative models of a causal cognition uh, often um, is useful in um, uh, answering descriptive questions about how people in fact reason causally. Um, this perspective is certainly not unique or original with me. 
I think it's very widely adopt, adopted in the um, causal cognition literature, where at least uh, a whole lot of the people working in this area, psychologists and cognitive scientists, uh, do tend to assume some sort of rational model uh, a picture of, uh, of a causal cognition. Now, I realize that this stands in contrast to another tradition in psychology, which focuses much more on the mistakes we make, uh, our, our biases, um, uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I guess I just find it more uh, interesting somehow and more, more worthwhile. And maybe at some level kind of more respectful to uh, 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 human subjects that are in these experiments, uh, if we um, try to understand to what extent what they're doing may may turn out to be uh, r rational or norm normatively uh, appropriate. And I mentioned in the book um, uh, several cases in which uh, people uh, engage in certain patterns of causal reasoning. Um, the initial reaction was, oh, this shows that people are being uh, irrational mm. or acting in normatively inappropriate ways. And then we've come to realize that actually, no, it was the normative analysis that was wrong. Um, if we kind of think in a, in, a, in a kind of deeper and more sophisticated way about what's normatively appropriate, uh, it turns out, at least in some range of cases, that uh, their cognition is uh, uh, rational after all. Can I put you on the spot uh, and have you describe one of those examples? Maybe your favorite example of that. Okay, so so there's a measure of um, what's called causal strength. Um, uh, that is, so so a lot of a lot of the psychological literature makes use of uh, subjects' judgments of what's called causal strength, where this course response to some the subject's response to something like the question how good of a cause would you say that c is for uh e so this is the uh, experimental data uh, uh that um at least some uh psychologists tr try to try to fit a simple measure of um uh that you might think is the normatively correct one uh when you have uh two uh, just a two binary events, uh, uh, a cause C that can take one of two values on or off and an effect E that can take one or two values on or off. Um, you might think that the normatively appropriate uh, judgment of causal strength to make in that case is just to take the conditional probability of the effect uh, in the presence of the cause and subtract from that what the conditional probability of the effect would be in the absence of the cause. This is called delta P. And um, people noticed uh, when they did these, uh, they looked at this uh, issue experimentally, uh, that subjects weren't always judging in accordance with delta P. And it turns out that there's a very good normative reason why they don't do that. And I won't go into a lot of details, but it's laid out very clearly in, for example, uh, work that Patricia Chang at UCLA has done. And the basic problem is that uh, if you're just focusing on, on delta, delta P, you're not adequately or appropriately controlling for the possibility that there may be other causes of E present besides C. So 
Chang has a, a somewhat more um, complicated measure, um, uh, which tracks, at least in some respects, um, causal strength judgments that subjects make much better than the naive delta p does. So that's just one example. I, I can give you uh, uh, a number of others if you're interested. Yeah, well, you, you use a lot of examples in the book. I mean, obviously, we're not going to go through all of them, but I just uh, thought it'd be useful as we go along to maybe visit some of the examples um, sure. about the various topics in the book. Uh, so let's see, where do we go from from here? Maybe let's back up for a, a moment because, um, well, you know what? Let's not back up. Uh, this is a terribly unfair question, but you know, just in a, in a broad sense, and you've you've been talking about this a little bit already. Um, you know, what is the relationship between the normative and the the the, uh, the normative and the descriptive? You know, how do we broadly judge causal reasoning? I mean, is your rational perspective uh, has it borne out uh, to to a successful um, <laughs> so that such that you think it's a successful and uh, oh, how do I put this? Has championed your rational approach? Have have the uh, results from cognitive sciences championed the rational approach? Like, how do you broad? You know, what's the big conclusion? Because you go through a lot of examples in the book. What's the big conclusion about how we judge and reason causality? So, so I, I think the question you're asked, or one question you're asking, is how do we tell whether a uh, a normative proposal about uh, mm. reasoning is uh, is correct or appropriate? Is that that's yes, yeah. So, my answer to that is is a, a kind of means end uh, uh, type answer. That is, we we specify some goal, uh, what it is that we want to uh, learn or figure out about, and typically in this sort of context, this will be learning about some. Uh, particular kind of causal concept. One of the themes of the book is that there are a whole variety of different Yeah, well, I want to come to that. Causal con concepts. So one of the things you need to do is to just specify clearly <laughs> uh, right at the beginning what, what concept it is that you are um, uh, interested in. I think of all of the causal concepts as connected in one way or another to issues about what would happen under interventions, but the connections are different in different cases. So suppose I, I say that, you know, what I want to learn is whether if I were to perform an intervention on C, um, E would change. So that's my goal. Then there are a, a variety of different ways in which I might try to answer that question, depending upon the kind of data that I have available to me. If I can actually do an experiment in which I manipulate C and see what happens to E, okay, that's... Uh, that's really straightforward. There's no complexity there. But suppose I can't do an experiment. Suppose I just have so-called observational data, where that means that the data is observed, but it hasn't come from uh, any kind of deliberate experiment. Then the question I should be asking myself is, can I somehow get information out of the observational data, perhaps in conjunction with other assumptions that I think are well-supported, that would allow me to answer this question about what would happen if I were to perform uh, an intervention in which I change C, and uh, how can I get an answer to the question of whether E would change um, under that kind of intervention? And under some circumstances, um, you can actually produce mathematical proofs that 
if certain assumptions are satisfied and you have certain information, then you are going to be able to answer that question about what will happen under an experiment. That's uh, uh, under if, if, if the experimental manipulation were to be performed. Uh, so that's um, one way of getting at the normative question. Um, sometimes uh, you can at least in, get at the normative question or at least suggest uh, that you're doing, that there's something right about your normative proposal uh, just by um, investigating uh, various kinds of inference strategies empirically. So um, I don't talk about this in the book, but um, I do talk about it in a long uh, subsequent paper that I published uh, earlier this year in a, a journal called Theoria. Um, there's been a lot of interesting work in the machine learning literature uh, concerning uh, uh, causal inference on the problem of inferring causal direction. Mm. So suppose you have two correlated variables, X and Y. Uh, you know that um, there's no uh, common cause. Um, so there isn't confounding in that sense, but you don't have any kind of temporal information that will allow you to determine which is the cause and which is the effect. In the past, um, people have thought if you're just, and you can't do an experiment, you're, you're just observationally seeing these, a correlation of some kind between X and Y. In the past, people have thought this was an insoluble problem. You can't figure out whether X is causing Y or Y is causing X. It turns out that given certain assumptions, um, uh, there are techniques uh, for solving this problem that work pretty well. And there are mathematical reasons why they work pretty well. But in addition, the people who devise these techniques, they went out and uh, they looked at cases where the causal direction was independently known. Mm. And they applied their uh, techniques to these cases. And it turned out that the uh, procedures, just as an empirical matter, uh, work fairly well. So one of the things that they did, for example, was uh, to look at the... Um, correlations between altitude and rainfall in Germany. Right. Well, of course, you think that it's the altitude that's causing the rainfall uh, uh, rather than vice versa. <laughs> and sure enough, um, the results are pretty good at um, uh, uh, reproducing that result. So they're, they're sort of empirical calibrationist arguments uh, uh, that you can make as uh, uh, you can make as well. So my, my general story about um, uh, rationality, it's a kind of means end or hypothetical imperative picture are the means you're employing like a certain inference strategy or something like that getting you to uh, 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 the end that you want to achieve now i think it's true as i've been saying uh, earlier that at least a fair amount of the time it turns out that people um the methods that ordinary folk use uh, in fact do have a uh, a kind of rational or normative justification of the sort that I just described. But I'm not claiming that those methods that people use are justified just because people use them. Uh, there has to be some kind of independent justification of the means end sort that I was uh, mm. uh, just describing a moment ago. So this is not, there, there's some philosophers who may think that we just take people's ordinary judgments about things and we kind of we kind of systematize them and uh, we describe them. And that's the correct story about how we should think about uh, causation or the normatively appropriate story about causal reasoning. I don't think 
I wouldn't claim anything like that at all. I think you need some sort of um, independent justification um, uh, of this means and sort that I was describing. Uh, but I think in fact, given that standard, it does turn out that people often reason causally in normal, normatively appropriate ways. So one of the lessons that I drew from the book, um, which was kind of a downer really, is just how complicated causation is. And yes. it just, you know, every freaking subject is just turns out to be super complicated the more you, um, the more you dig into it. Uh, and that there are maybe, okay, so there's a couple different ways we could go here. Being a neuro, an ex-neuroscientist, I'm uh, automatically, uh, reflexively wanting to talk about scaling up notions of complexity. But before we do that, maybe as a, even kind of a teaser, maybe we should talk about different notions of complexity because, you know, growing up, I, I guess, in, in my naivete, growing up scientifically, it seems like, okay, there's one kind of cause. There's one notion, a thing can cause something or not. And mm -hmm. I wasn't um, hip to the notions of proportionality, of invariance, of different notions of causality. So maybe we can go through and just tease out why there are, you know, why there's not just a single way to think about causation and some of the different notions of causality. Okay. Um, well, as you say, this is a, a somewhat complicated landscape, at least from my point of view. Um, philosophers themselves have uh, distinguished um, at least several different uh, causal notions. So one familiar uh, contrast is the contrast between so-called type causation and token causation. Uh, type causation has to do with um, something like a, a, a repeatable uh, causal relation. So if I say that uh, smoking causes lung cancer, that's a, a so-called type causal relation. A token causal relation, or sometimes nowadays it's called an actual cause um, relation, uh, is a claim to the effect that, for example, some particular person, uh, uh, Joe Jones, uh, his lung cancer uh, was caused by smoking. So that's one contrast. And the way in which you find out about type level claims and the way in which you find out about token level claims are, is an important way it's pretty different. Hmm. So any um, treatment of causation has to be sensitive to that contrast to begin with. Uh, there are other kinds of contrasts too that I could uh, that I could go into, and I'm not sure how how useful they'll be to the reader. But um, I would one thing, someone who I would particularly recommend uh, in this connection is uh, uh, Judah Pearl, mm -hmm. uh, particularly in recent work. And he's been very very sensitive to um, different kinds of causal notions that really corresponded very different kinds of causal questions we might want to ask about a system. I mean, for example, we might want to ask, does this cause in aggregate have a, a sort of total or net effect on some uh, uh, effective interest? That's one thing we might be interested in. But often, uh, particularly in um, biological, but also in other sorts of contexts, we have the idea that a cause can influence an effect by many, many different routes along lots of different uh, uh, routes. So if you, you know, in, in a neurobiological context, if you give a subject a stimulus, um, uh, there may be a, a number of different uh, 
neuronal uh, uh, roots that um, lead to some overall response in the brain. You might be interested not in just in the overall effect, but what happens along those individual roots. And that's you know what's sometimes called a, a path-specific uh, notion of causation, or um, I, I talk about it in my 2003 book as a, involving a notion of contributing cause or causation along a route. Mm-hmm. So you want to make that distinction too. There are a bunch of other distinctions. Now, it's, but that's only part of the story. Of course. <laughs> because in addition to different causal notions, I claim the following. The basic interventionist notion of causation, I think, is a very kind of weak or minimal notion. All that it really involves is the idea that there's some way of wiggling the candidate cause such that the uh, candidate effect will change. Well, obviously, um, you, in many, many contexts, you want to know a lot more than that. You want to know a lot more about the detailed character of the relation between C and E. And I have, uh, I don't in any way claim this is a complete framework or a complete classification, but I have uh, several different categories that I think are uh, important uh, when we try to understand um, what I call distinctions within causation. So in other words, we have a bunch of relations, they satisfy this minimal interventionist condition for causation I was talking about a moment ago, but they differ in other ways. We can make distinctions among them. So for example, Causal relations can um, differ in how stable they are, or as I use the language, uh, uh, how how invariant they are. Mm -hmm. So it might be um, that if you wiggle C, um, E will change, but only in very, very specific background conditions. Uh, So the CE relationship is very sensitive. You change anything even a little bit, and uh, the causal relationship between C and E breaks down. Another possibility is, is that that relationship is comparatively stable or maybe even extremely stable. Um, pretty much no matter what else you do, uh, as long as C takes a certain value, E will take a, uh, a certain value. And um, of course, other things being equal, we value the stable relationships. We, uh, we try to find them. Um, um, we, uh, you know, if you find a stable relationship, then if you, uh, if it holds in one context, you can uh, exploit it or project it to another context. Well, wait, can, let me just, as an example, I mean, just to go, you know, give like the, the uh, trite example of billiard balls, right? So that would be a highly invariant relationship. Uh, the, the billiard That's balls. Sorry, what would be? Um, two, like two billiard balls, one billiard ball hitting another, and then the projection thereafter. You could do it in water, you could do it in heat, uh, and, and the calculations would hold over lots of invariant um, uh, situations, right? Um, what, would, what would be an example of one that is non-invariant that, that jumps to your mind? Okay. Um, think, think about um, an experiment uh, which might be done, say, in, in a social science context, you're interested in whether um, a certain um, teaching protocol or um, academic uh, educational technique or regime uh, works to uh, improve um, uh, academic performance. And you do, as people in this 
area do you you do a ra- you do a randomized uh, control experiment you have a you know you get you treat some of the uh, uh, students, you expose some of the students to the educational regime and you <laughs> have a control group that aren't exposed and you find in, in the particular experimental group that you're um, uh, uh, making use of, uh, maybe it's someplace in the middle of Indiana, uh, the, this educational regime uh, uh, boosts academic performance. You then take this um, regime uh, and you try it out in um, San Francisco or in New York City uh, with different populations, and it doesn't work there. Uh, That would be an example of a non-invariant or relatively non-invariant relation. It might be that the relationship is genuinely causal, um, and your your randomized experiment showed that, Mm -hmm. but it's sensitive in all sorts of unknown ways to, you know, features of the particular environment, the particular population of students you're working with and so on and so forth. And so it doesn't generalize very well. And I think it's unfortunately true that at least at present, a lot of the causal relationships that are uh, discovered in uh, uh, the social sciences and to some extent in psychology too, uh, they tend to be relatively uh, non-invariant. They don't they don't export very well. I mean, the, it seems like uh, the vast majority of causal uh, uh, of causal situations that we're interested in are going to be of that type. The ones that matter to us the most seem to the, the biggest class that matter to us are non-invariant types. Is that accurate? Well, I think it. Re- I mean, I, I think it really depends on the um, particular case in hand and. This is, I hate to overgeneralize here because this is going to, I'm going to get people in uh, any, anyone in any one of a number of various scientific disciplines who may hear this is going to get upset. <laughs> okay. I think, in fact, that, that the relationships that are discovered in physics and chemistry and uh, the more, what shall I say, molecular or physiological parts of biology, uh, they tend to be more stable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, or invariant than the relationships that we discover in, um, say, economics or psychology. Now, often, of course, what I mean, the of course, we're interested in the you know the relationships that are discovered in biology, chemistry, of course. But we're often what is really um, a, a particular interest to us are these relationships in um, uh, uh, social science and psychology, um, because. Um, since causation has to do with what has what will happen under uh, interventions, we want to discover relationships that we can uh, make use of for uh, social policy purposes. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that those relationships, even if causal, are uh, tend to be they have very circumscribed um, uh, conditions of application, and exactly how one. Uh, responds in, in these sorts of circumstances to that problem, I think, is a really uh, it's a really uh, it's a really interesting and delicate question. You can always say, well, okay, we you know the, the the really stable relationships are there even in the social sciences, and we just haven't found them yet. Uh, that's one possibility. How likely is that? What? How likely is that? 
I, I guess at this point, I'm, I, I'm a bit skeptical that anything like that is true. But uh, well, is it is I, it maybe could could one generalize and say you know because there are different? Um, I mean, maybe you have more to say about this, but you know, the physics, the chemistry, these are all nano, micro scale. I mean, I know there's macro physics as well and macro chemistry, but is it accurate as a generalization to say that invariance? decreases as scale increases or and or as i suppose complexity in, increases yeah i would think probably complexity is maybe the uh the relevant consideration here because um of course um newtonian gravitational theory and general relativity uh uh works very well uh, for all sorts of uh you know very large scale uh, uh structures right. in our universe so I don't think it's just a matter of size, but it may very well um, be uh, partly a matter of complexity. But in, in a way, when you talk about a system being complex, that's just sort of a, I'm not sure how helpful that is just because it seems to me to be kind of a label for <laughs> uh, for everything that we don't understand. <laughs> um, so I think you know the the general question of what makes a system complex and what is it that um, uh, is going on in those systems that that is kind of so makes them so refractory to uh, uh, at least simple forms of causal understanding. I think that's an extremely um, uh, 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 deep and interesting question. Well, I'm going to go ahead and jump in here. I know that I keep interrupting us and interrupting your trains of thought, but. I'm going to ask about um, you know neuroscience and, and brains then, but because a lot of a lot of the causal cognition work is done, and a lot of the you know armchair philosophical thought experiments are done on relatively simple systems, right? Uh, but then, and that's hard enough to grapple with as you go through in you know in detail through the book with all of these different examples, you know what what is your outlook on how we will be able to scale these concepts? Mm -hmm. I use the word scale, but in now in terms of applying this functionalist approach to causation to, you know, complex systems in my case, like brains, but also in psychology. And what I really want to ask you uh, as a follow-up is what um, you see, if you have thoughts on this as, you know, the, the connection between a brain, a mind and behavior. Do you, how do you see them causally connected? Do you, uh, are you brave enough to uh, tread those waters? Well, let me uh, uh, start with your, your first question, which, as I recall, um, uh, uh, had to do with uh, applying th causal thinking to a, a, a system that is as complicated as the brain. And it's certainly true that there are features of that, though, that system and, indeed, other similar systems that make that pose particular problems for causal analysis. And um, let me just mention two. Uh, one is uh, the presence of causal cycles of various sorts. In other words, where you know C influences E and E influences F and F influences G, but then G comes back around uh, and uh, yeah. uh, influences C. This is certainly, uh, I, I think, something that you find in uh, 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 go, going on in neural processing. And then another thing that I think makes the analysis so difficult is that you um, are 
involved in somehow trying to understand uh, processing that's going on at different levels, so to speak, at at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and issues about whether there can be causal relations across levels, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Then, and, and, and if so, how you, you are even going to conceptualize that, uh, that becomes uh, uh, very, very uh, uh, important in this context. In some of the physical systems that we were talking about earlier, not, not brain, but simple physical systems, um, you often have um, a relatively neat separation between levels. So if you want to understand what's going on at one level, you don't necessarily have to pay attention to what's going on at a, another so-called uh, lower level. So there's a, a certain amount of autonomy of levels, so to speak. Well, that exists in neuroscience versus psychology as well, right? That a lot of people think that that autonomy needs to maintain because um, it's dangerous or maybe uh, reckless to start talking about between levels. To start talking about what? The- Cause out about explanation between levels that everyone needs to stay on in, on their plane. But I think that in the case of the brain, the, that sort of strategy isn't going to work. There, there, there isn't the clean uh, uh, separation of levels. And I think the, the prospects for a completely autonomous psychology that is, you know, autonomous of, uh, 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 with respect to uh, what's going on in the brain, I, I doubt that uh, that's going um, to pan out very well. So I, th- I think you have this um, situation when you have, so to speak, leakage between levels <laughs> uh, in, uh, uh, in structures like the brain, and that makes uh, also the analysis, the causal analysis, very, um, uh, very difficult. And of course, the, o- the other thing is we don't really, at this point, have all that good a handle or understanding on um, exactly what the the units, so to speak, are. Uh, that we um, uh, would expect in the case of the brain to be standing in uh, causal relations. Um, One would like, uh, obviously, given how many neurons there are, that the the level of analysis had better be something uh, larger than the individual neuron. But what is it? Circuits, um, uh, populations of neurons, uh, something else? if you just talk about, you know, gross anatomical areas like uh, V1 or V2 or the hippocampus or something like that, that seems, you know, far too uh, uh, coarse, coarse grain to, yeah. to for these to be useful units of causal analysis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm, I'm fr- I mean, I don't have. Um, <laughs> detailed or useful uh, 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 suggestions about how to proceed. There's there's increasing interest. I, I know because I, you know, I see papers about this from time to time among uh, uh, neuroscientists about what you, you know. If we want to have some sort of causal understanding about what's going on, first of all, how do we even think about what causation should mean in this context? And then, as I was saying a moment ago, what what are the you know, what are the units, what's the level uh, at, at which we can um, plausibly hope to find uh, interesting causal generalizations? Uh, before, oh, well, no, before we get off this topic, so I, I don't know if you want to talk about downward causation at all, 
Um, and I, I was hoping to kind of tease you out to talk about that when I asked you my second follow-up question, which is what, what you see as the causal relation between a brain, a mind, however you define mind, and uh, overt behavior that we can measure. Yeah. Well, so as you may know, for, this isn't in my most recent book, uh, The Causation with the Human Facebook, but in other recent papers, I've defended the idea that there is um, such a thing as downward causation, understood as you know causation from a, a so-called higher level, which usually the higher level is just a kind of coarse graining of uh, some lower level. There can be causation from a so-called higher level to a lower level up. I've been influenced by uh, a couple of uh, recent discussions and books of this uh, about this. There's a, a long and quite interesting book by uh, George Ellis, the uh, uh, physicist and cosmologist, among other things, where he, I think, uh, advances a uh, he, he provides a number of plausible physical examples of uh, uh, downward causation. That is examples from physics. Um, Dennis Noble. Uh, in uh, uh, biology, uh, works on heart modeling, among other things, uh, provides plausible examples uh, from um, uh, biological context. So yes, I see that, uh, I do think there's such a thing as uh, downward causation. And I claim anyway that it fits naturally within the interventionist framework because all that has to happen is you wiggle some you know, relatively upper level or coarse grain variable and something at a so-called lower level changes in response, that's enough for causation. It's not, uh, you don't really require anything more than that. Now, there are lots of people who think that there are, you know, metaphysical and other kinds of objections to downward causation, but partly because the um, interventionist uh, uh, framework for causation is is so metaphysically thin, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, uh, don't have any problem. Uh, I, I don't think with making sense of uh, downward causation. So, does uh, brain cause mind, and mind cause behavior? Does brain cause behavior and mind? Uh, yeah, I, I'm happy with causal relations uh, running in the, all directions. Uh, does mind all, cause all, all yeah. these directions? Now, of course. When I talk about the mind, I just I assume that this is just something physical. It's it's just a uh, uh, a kind of more uh, coarse grained and abstract way of uh, uh, of describing physical physical mm -hmm. going okay. so, so I'm not here, um, you know, embracing any kind of dualism or anything like that. I don't think the mind is something that's uh, separate from the uh, 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 from the brain. It's just the roughly the uh, when you know when we describe uh, psychological or mental goings on, we're just talking about you know what's going on in the, in the brain or maybe even in the whole person, uh, just at a certain level of you know relatively coarse grained description. Doesn't extend to the environment. You're not a um, inactive uh, pro inactive approach. That's something that I haven't uh, <laughs> thought about a whole lot. Um, I'm not. I mean, I get get why people want to talk about, uh, you know, the, the role of the environment and, and uh, embodied uh, cognition and all that other kind of stuff. I'm not sure at this point that any very interesting science has come out of that. Okay. I'm, I'm going to have Michael Anderson on soon. So I'll let, I'll pass that on to him and see what he has to say about that. Um, Cause he's a pro inactive. Can, can we um, talk about 
laws for a second. So I'll let you off the hook with the brain behavior mind stuff here and go back to kind of the um, invariance uh, aspects of causation. I realized, uh, you know, again, growing up in science, as I was growing up in science, especially physics, of course, where everything is laws, um, you know, the gravitational law, etc. I sort of just accepted that there are laws in the universe. And then recently I was in conversation with someone and I realized I had changed my mind so much on this that I told this person that I don't believe in laws. And then of course they made a lot of fun of me. And do you think that the earth is just going to fly away from the sun? You know, that, that sort of stuff. Do you believe in laws or how should we think of laws? Well, yes, I do believe that there, uh, that there are laws, although I may have a somewhat different uh, picture of what okay. a law is than, than perhaps other philosophers do. So I just think of laws as highly invariant uh, generalizations. But that means so, a law doesn't exist, right? That means that you're, you're, you give the name law to this thing that doesn't vary much, but it's not like a fundamental part of the universe, or is it? Well, so here's the way I would think about it. I, I think there's uh, so causal claims and even things we might want to describe as laws can vary in their degree of invariance. Okay, so something can be invariant uh, only under a very limited set of uh, changes in other kinds of conditions, mm -hmm. or it can be invariant under a hugely wide range of changes. Um, uh, in other conditions. So take something like uh, so-called Hooke's law, the so-called law, uh, which says that the, um, you know, the force exerted by a spring is inversely pr proportional to the, uh, well, it's the negative of, of the uh, extension. It is inversely proportional, sorry, it's the negative of the extension of the um, uh, of the spring. Of the and that's a generalization. That's a kind of simple F equals minus KX. That's a kind of simple uh, linear relationship. Um, it will describe the behavior of some springs uh, uh, okay in a certain range. Mm. But of course, if you stretch a spring too much, uh, it'll break and uh, the law will no longer, no longer describe at all uh, what the restoring force will be. So that's a generalization it expresses a causal relationship between the extension and the uh, restoring force but it holds only in a relatively uh, limited range of circumstances compare that with the Newtonian law of uh, gravitation um, holds under a very very wide range of different circumstances uh, holds near the surface of the earth holds uh, for our solar system uh, uh, holds elsewhere uh, 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 in the universe, uh, holds for uh, uh, masses of, uh, of varying sizes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But um, the Newtonian um, uh, gravitational law itself will break down under some circumstances. When, for example, um, uh, very massive objects are uh, with strong gravitational fields are um, uh, are in play um, when we're dealing with um, uh, velocities that are very large in uh, comparison with the velocity of light, then Newtonian gravitational theory no longer applies very well and we have to go to general relativity. So that's my, that's my picture. We have the, you know, generalizations of more or less 
uh, uh, invariants. Um, so far, um, I think it's a plausible claim, although some will dispute this, uh, that we haven't discovered any generalizations that are absolutely uh, exceptionless. It mm. would appear that uh, in every case, there are circumstances under which um, uh, the generalization will break down. And this is true even for the highly invariant generalizations that we give the name laws of nature to. Uh, so in the case of general relativity, for example, it's thought that it will break down at uh, you know extremely small uh, length scales, uh, uh, the so-called Planck length. Planck, and that's yeah. part of what the uh, in search of, for a theory of quantum gravity uh, is all about. So uh, kind of degrees of invariance, uh, it's not like there's something magical about the notion of law. It's just, it's sort of like what's going on with the, uh, uh, the spring and the restoring force, except much broader range of invariance. And I think that's all there is to it. I, I don't think that anything more elaborate than that needs to be said about uh, what makes a generalization count as a law of nature. All right. So in the book, you talk about, you spend, I think, three chapters talking about invariance and different causal cognition, um, empirical studies related to invariance. And then you finish the book with a chapter on proportionality. Um, what is proportionality? And what, um, you know, maybe your favorite illustration uh, of, of results related to proportionality? So, I, I, I said earlier that, that even uh, if you, among those relationships that count as causal in some minimal sense, as captured by interventions, and we can make further distinctions. One distinction we can make has to do, as I've been saying a little while ago, with how uh, stable or invariant the relationship is. Another distinction uh, has to do with to what extent the, the um, relation between the cause and the effect are proportional. Uh, so that's another distinction within causation. Now, what does proportionality mean? Well, the rough idea is that the cause and the effect have to fit together uh, in an appropriate way. I'll give you an illustration in a minute, but I also, before explaining any more, I wanted to flag that this is also by no means an idea that's original with me. Mm. Um, it was uh, introduced into the philosophical literature by Steve Diablo, or oh, maybe now probably coming up on uh, maybe close to 30 or 25 years ago. So here is um, one of Yablo's um, uh, uh, illustrations of the, of the basic idea. Suppose you have a pigeon um, and um, the pigeon has been trained um, in such a way that it will peck at red and only red targets. Okay. You present the pigeon with a target that's a particular shade of scarlet, and sure enough, the pigeon pecks. Now, compare the following two causal claims. The scarlet color of the target caused the pigeon to peck. That's causal claim one. Causal claim two, the red color of the target caused the pigeon to peck, because after all, the target, in virtue of being scarlet, is, is red. And the intuition you're supposed to have is that the second one, the second causal claim, the red color, 
of the uh, target uh, caused the um, uh, pigeon to peck. This is somehow, it somehow seems better or more satisfactory. And the reason why it's more satisfactory is that we've, we said in the very setup of the problem that the, um, the, the pigeon would peck whenever the target was red. So intuitively, if you pick on, if, if, if you say that it's the scarlet color of the target, that caused the pecking. You're, you've described the cause in, in too narrow a way. Okay. It, it, it's kind of overly... Because um, it, it doesn't account for all the other shades of red that would also cause right. the... Yeah. That's, that's right. Um, so it's an interesting question. Uh, so this is this kind of intuitive idea that, that, that the cause and the effect should be, be at the same grain, so to speak. That's another way of thinking about it. Okay. So the, the, the kind of graining that goes on when you talk about the cause of scarlet is it seems too it seems too narrow. It seems overly specific, so something like that. Given that the effect is um, uh, pecking, you want the cause and the effect to be at the same grain. But several issues then arise. First of all, can you make this precise in any way? Uh, I've been talking about it in a sort of metaphorical. Uh, way and then secondly, to what extent do ordinary people in their causal judgments uh, respect the idea that they that they prefer causes that are proportional to their effects? And that's one of the things I try to do in the chapter. I won't uh, bore you with the uh, effort to make uh, things more precise, but there is some uh, experimental uh, work that does seem to show that uh, people. Um, uh, do uh, tend to prefer descriptions of causes that are uh, proportional to effects. Is this related to uh, intuitions? But you spend some time in the book defending intuitions. Um, maybe you could say a, a word about that. I meant to ask you about it earlier, but we can tack it on here. Sure. So it, it's a very common practice within philosophy, generally, not just philosophical discussions of causation, to um, appeal to so-called intuitions. So you have uh, um, intuitions here are just sort of uh, kind of, the one way of thinking about, about them is they're fairly spontaneous judgments about particular cases. And reasoning about philosophical matters in this way is a very, very old uh, tradition in philosophy. Uh, uh, if you go look at the Platonic dialogues, they're full of these uh, sorts of arguments yeah. about, you know, would you consider this a case of justice? Would you consider that a case of justice? Is this a case of knowledge? This, so on and so forth. Um, and unsurprisingly, the philosophical literature on causation is also uh, full of uh, uh, examples that involve um, appeals to intuition. That is what we would, uh, kind of the man in the street would ordinarily, or person in the street, excuse me. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Oh, you'd saved yourself. Nice job. <laughs> uh, the person in the street uh, would, would, would kind of spontaneously um, uh, say, and uh, then p uh, philosophers try to construct theories of causation uh, uh, around, around this. So, you know, and, and this is, th this got a bad name after a while, right? Because it's not experiment is not um, uh, it's not experimentally robust it's it's it seems and especially given and i know that you know that you find us all to be extremely rational and correct uh humans but we do have human error and those you know there are errors regarding our intuitions as well but 
Yeah, so the, the there has been a huge amount of discussion recently about the uh, role of these appeals to intuition uh, in philosophy. Um, some uh, philosophers have, have criticized um, uh, any kind of appeal to intuition. Um, uh, others have uh, worried that when philosophers appeal to uh, intuitions, they're, you know, they're basically, among other things, making claims about how people or so-called ordinary folk would uh, judge or what they would say about various situations. Maybe those claims that the philosopher makes from the armchair are not um, empirically very well supported. That's been another, uh, another line of critique. Um, one of the reasons why philosophers, or at least some of them, have been unhappy with appeals of intuition, appeals to intuition, is that at least some philosophers who appeal to intuition have um, assigned intuition uh, uh, features that is very hard to see within any kind of kind of naturalistic or scientific framework how intuition can have those features. So. You know, people have thought that when you have an intuition of something that's involves some kind of rationalistic uh, uh, grasp of the underlying metaphysical nature of things and like that. Um, I do defend um, appeals to intuition in connection with uh, uh, reasoning or thinking about causation uh, to some limited extent. That is what I think is going on when a... Uh, philosopher uh, describes a case and then says, uh, you know, my intuition about this case is, is such and such, is simply that the philosopher is reporting what he or she uh, thinks or judges about the case and what the philosopher expects that other people uh, will judge about the case. So if I give you, a, this is a, a standard uh, scenario that's very, very simple and I think uncontroversial. If I describe a case in which two people, Billy and Susie, are throwing rocks in a bottle, uh, and um, the, both rocks are headed right toward the bottle, but Susie's rock gets there a little bit before Billy's, and the bottle shatters, and then if we ask, you know, who broke the bottle or which rock caused the bottle to break, well, then, of course, it's the one that uh, got there uh, first. Uh, that's our so-called intuition about the example, and uh, again, I don't think there's anything <laughs> anything very controversial about that, just understood as a claim about, you know, how people would judge or think uh, about yeah. the yeah. Uh, uh, example. Now, w one of the things I claim in the book is that, at least to some extent, um, people in psychology who are doing experiments about uh, the kinds of causal judgments that people make they're basically in the same business as the philosopher who um, uh, describes intuitive reactions uh, to judgments. Uh, the, the psychologist is maybe being a little bit more uh, systematic and uh, maybe looking at a broader range of subjects. It isn't just the philosopher and a couple of the philosopher's friends who are <laughs> the, uh, the source of the information about uh, how people judge. But I think it's basically uh, the same sort of um, uh, undertaking. And to the extent that that's so, uh, in other words, to the extent that the philosopher is just making empirical claims about he or she or most other people will judge, um, you, you might wonder whether it's an empirical matter the claims are correct or not. And of course, you can go 
assess that in, in, in kind of obvious ways, but there's nothing, um, there's nothing problematic about that kind of appeal, uh, that kind of use of um, uh, appeals, appeals to intuitions. You don't have to get into, um, you know, some elaborate uh, rationalistic story about insight into the nature of things or anything like that to defend that kind of use of intuition. Now, an important distinction, though, that I do make in the book uh, is the following. I think it's one thing to say that um, philosophers may have a pretty good sense about how uh, other people would judge in um, a certain range of uh, familiar cases about uh, causal relationships. I think that philosophers, and indeed people in general, though have very little insight into why they judge as they do. Mm. In other words, mm. um, I might be able to tell you that in a certain situation, um, people are gonna judge that X caused Y and Z didn't cause Y. But if you ask me then, well, well how did you come up with that uh, judgment? Uh, yeah. Or what was the underlying causal processes that led you to make that judgment? I don't think that that is something that, at least in most cases, we're in a position to, uh, uh, we, we can't really answer questions uh, about matters of that sort uh, via, via appeal to intuitions. In other words, we, don't, we just don't have the uh, access via introspection to the causal processes that uh, generate our intuitions. And I think one of the things that, uh, one of several things that can become problematic about appeals uh, to intuitions and philosophy is that people sometimes uh, think not just that they hmm. have access to the judgments that they and other people are likely to make, but that they have some access to the underlying processes uh, that are generating those judgments or that. Uh, the underlying uh, distinctions that they're relying on when they make the judgments and so on and so forth. And I think that's a good deal more problematic. To get at the underlying processes, you really need uh, something like experimentation, I think, uh, of the sort that uh, uh, psychologists do, or at least some much more sophisticated form of, uh, of uh, uh, causal analysis. You can't really accomplish it just by, uh, just by introspection. Well, right, because... In my view, we confabulate the reasons why the causal explanation of why we do almost anything, and it's it's embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. But, but we do. <laughs> yeah, there's and there's a huge amount of um, psychological evidence that people um, uh, at least often um, uh, confabulate about why they uh, have made the uh, judgments and decisions. Yeah. Uh, Made and I, I'm uh, I'm certainly not someone who's going to going to deny that that's the case. All right, Jim. Um, I have one more question for you before we take uh, we go into sort of uh, some extra time that uh, I will release only to my, the Patreon subscribers, people who support the podcast. Before I ask you this one last question, are, are there any? Is there anything that we have missed that you want to highlight about? Uh, causation with a human face that we haven't gone over. I know we kind of skipped around a lot of stuff and I interrupted and we went back and forth, but did I miss anything or did we? Well, I just very quickly, uh, a couple of things. Great. One of the things I would like to emphasize um, is, is the, what I see as the very fruitful interplay between 
the normative and descriptive uh, in um, thinking about causation and causal cognition. I would emphasize to philosophers uh, that the causal cognition literature that's been produced by psychologists and cognitive uh, scientists is really a very, very rich source yeah. of information and examples um, for um, many, many of the problems that they're interested in. And they should really, uh, really pay attention to this. Uh, going the other way, um, as we were suggesting earlier, mm. I think that paying attention to the ways in which um, people actually make causal judgments can often be rather suggestive for um, the right kind of normative thinking about uh, uh, causation. Um, if I may use an analogy, there's in 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 trying to uh, develop um, um, uh, structures that that do uh, uh, computer vision uh, 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 effectively, uh, it's turned out to be um, a very very useful to uh, try to investigate how the human visual system does it. Yeah. Um, and I think that similar thing is going to be true uh, in connection with uh, uh, causal cognition. If you want to build a machine uh, that's good at uh, causal inference, um, you should pay some attention to how it appears anyway, uh, human beings do it. Now, that isn't to say that the machine is going to be successful by uh, in, in copying in every respect what human beings do. Uh, uh, the machine has certain kinds of abilities like you know, abilities that multiply enormous numbers together very quickly and so on uh, that human beings uh, don't have. But I, I want to say that the descriptive stuff can be very, very useful uh, from the point of view of uh, 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 people who are interested in normative theory. So I want to just kind of get across this idea that there's that there's this possibility of really, really fruitful interactions between the uh, between the two. Let me, I'll also before you, oh, hold on. Before you go on, I have a, just a follow-up question about that because you alluded to the visual system and building these networks that map onto our you know, visual system and our brains and can explain brain activity. Um, in that case, and we've talked about that kind of um, approach a lot on the podcast. In that case, the network maps onto a, a, like a well-known one of the um, streams, visual streams in the brain well-known architecture and hierarchical structures, right? The the hierarchy of processing. And well, I don't, you know, I don't even know what the uh, current neuroscience of causality is like what, um, you know, to use a phrenology approach, where in the brain causality happens, how causal reasoning happens in the brain. Do you have any idea? I, I really don't have any idea what the current science is because you're talking about these, you know, if you created a neural network that was great at causal inference, um, maybe we would learn something about how humans do it, but it's not clear to me. There's not a ready known system in the brain that we could try to map that onto, at least that I'm naively. No, I think that's true. I think very little is known about the, uh, uh, the underlying neurobiology of, uh, okay. uh, uh, of causal inference. Um, I will, I will say the following though, in, um, the normative uh, work that's been done on uh, causal inference, um, one of the things that uh, people have, uh, one of the conclusions that people have come to 
and at least this is my interpretation of, of things, is that you basically need something like two levels of representation. You need a level of representation that sort of tracks correlations. But of course, we know co causation isn't correlation, just correlation. And then so the, the way in which this is you know, captured in normative theorizing is there's an additional structure uh, um, over and above the correlational structure that, for example, might be represented by something like a directed graph or a set of structural equations uh, or something, something like that. Now, there's also um, a substantial amount of evidence that I go through in, in the book that human beings in their causal representations, however it, these may be wherever these may be located in the brain, also have this kind of two-level um, uh, uh, mm. kind of representation. There's a, there's a sort of more associationist or uh, correlational uh, level of representation, but there seems to be something on top of that that is um, uh, apparently uh, essential to uh, uh, successful causal cognition. And this isn't just a matter of the representation of correlations. Mm -hmm. And I, I myself think, and uh, this is a claim that Pearl and others have made, uh, that this has implications for uh, designing a machine that will engage in uh, successful uh, causal inference or learning. It, it's not going to be a machine that just uh, um, represents patterns of association. Mm -hmm. It's going gonna, it's gonna to have to have additional... Uh, additional structure to it. Do do you and Judea Pearl hang out? Do you guys uh, do coffees and uh, make causality jokes and stuff? No, not really. I mean, I do. I do know him. <laughs> yeah, okay. uh, 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 and and certainly have uh, uh, talked to him on a number of number of occasions. But no, we don't hang out together. Particularly since uh, okay. right now he's in he's in uh, Los Angeles and I'm in Pittsburgh. And you retired. I, you you told me between these takes that uh, you right. were retired. I didn't know that. Congratulations on the retirement, and I hope that. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. yeah. Um, what else were we missing? You said you had a, a couple things. Did you cover them all? Here's the other thing, and, and I guess it's implicit in, in what I've said already. Uh, one of the things that really appeals to me about causation and causal reasoning, just as a general topic, is that it spans so many different disciplines. Oh. So this work in philosophy um, uh, that I think is uh, at least sometimes uh, <laughs> uh, fruitful uh, and interesting, but then there's also work in um, uh, machine learning and statistics, uh, uh, econometrics, and, uh, and 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 in psychology, and 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 all of these, you know, people in these different disciplines talk to one another at least to some extent. And so there's very very fruitful AI. Uh, uh, interactions. So if you're a philosopher and you're interested in cross-disciplinary work, this is, a, I think, a very, um, a very interesting place to be. And it is an area in which, at least as I see it, um, identifiable progress uh, is being made. We're, we're, we're learning uh, uh, more and more about all sorts of uh, uh, different, different things. And you know, the issues about um, causal analysis of complex systems, um, uh, thinking uh, causally in a fruitful way when you have 
so-called big data, enormous uh, amounts of data, um, building machines that might conceivably um, uh, engage in uh, uh, successful causal inference. These are really, I, I think, uh, uh, exciting and interesting issues. And so uh, I just want to say, if you're, if you're a philosopher or even someone in another discipline, this, uh, this is a... Uh, this whole complex of questions and issues is a really uh, is it's kind of fruitful and interesting place to be from my point of view. If we built machines that uh, did great causal inference, um, thinking about wanting to build machines that uh, mimic our own general kinds of intelligence, would that mean that they would confabulate the reasons why? Also, <laughs> well, that's a very interesting question. That's a very interesting <laughs> question. So, you know, I, I uh, I guess to some extent, our, our tendency to confabulate is, you might think of it as a sort of byproduct of a, um, uh, an impulse that we have that is actually quite useful, yeah. uh, is searching for explanations for things. Yeah. And I mean, we are the kinds of creatures that uh, when something happens, uh, we want to know why. We seem to have an impulse to to try to answer that question. And of course that sometimes leads us to uh, yeah. uh, come up with uh, answers to such questions that, uh, you, you know, have uh, no empirical support, but <laughs> right. It's like we, they, we throw the dice and just are satisfied with wherever they land. And, and at least yeah, in this respect, maybe the, you know, I, I think the question, the relevant question we should be asking ourselves is not, to, not whether it's true does this impulse sometimes lead us to uh, make mistakes or uh, lead us astray? But would it be a good thing if we didn't have the impulse at all? Because mm. uh, that maybe is the trade-off. Yeah. And and it's not at all. It seems to me the answer to that last question is probably clearly no. Uh, so it's it's a it's an impulse we have, but it gets. Um, <laughs> it can go into overdrive in, in, in ways that is that's not so uh yeah not so cool. it, it, there's no way it's an evolutionary mistake because evolution does not make mistakes but <laughs> that's a that's a whole nother two-hour discussion in there but, okay so uh i'm going to close uh before i ask you just a few kind of one-off questions um if you had a so you mentioned progress and that we're making discernible progress um in causation in lots of different fields if you had a magic wand that could give you the, the one thing you think that would help you make progress as a philosopher in causation, um, you know, be they experimental uh, empirical results or some um, philosophical kind of breakthrough or realization, do you have a sense of what what you would wish for with your magical wand? That's a very good question, and I and I don't have a. Uh... Uh, a single answer to that question. I think a lot of the progress that will occur is going to have to be somewhat incremental. Um, there will be, uh, you, you know, mathematical uh, advances. Uh, there, there will be um, uh, additional um, uh, 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 experimental work that uh, explains better uh, what what it is we're able to do. I guess one general thing that I would be very interested in, in understanding better is the following: we, we we as humans, as at least as adult humans, seem to have abilities at causal cognition that are um, 
in many ways pretty superior to those of other animals, including mm. um, uh, other other primates. But I think the the exact character of our uh, advantage is not very well understood. That is, and and I, and I don't mean to suggest it needs to be just one thing either. But but what exactly is it that makes us so much better uh, at uh, causal inference yeah. than, uh, 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 than other animals? I mean. You know, other animals are great at, um, you know, kind of more associationist forms of learning. Uh, so that by itself doesn't seem to be what the difference is. And so I think I think that's a really uh, that, that's a really interesting empirical question that I'd like to know the answer to. Yeah, me too. I meant to actually ask you about that difference. Um, uh, of course, it's not going to be one thing, as we've discovered with causality. It's complicated. It's always complicated. <laughs> All right, Jim, thank you so much for the book. Um, are, are we going to see another one in 10 years? Sorry, will I produce another one? In Yeah, in the next 10 years? I, I, well, I, I don't know. I mean, I have some ideas um, that might possibly go into a book. Um, although I'm retired, I'm hoping that I'll continue working uh, yeah. uh, as, long as, it's, as, as long as that's possible. That's certainly my plan. Um, so. We'll see. You don't seem retired. I appreciate your time here with me today. And thanks again for recording it again. Uh, I had even more fun this time actually speaking with you, which, uh, which was somewhat surprising given that we did it before. So thank you. Oh, you're very, you're very welcome. I alone produce Brain Inspired. If you value this podcast, consider supporting it through Patreon to access full versions of all the episodes and to join our Discord community. Or if you want to learn more about the intersection of neuroscience and AI, consider signing up for my online course, NeuroAI, The Quest to Explain Intelligence. Go to braininspired.co to learn more. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. You're hearing music by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you. Thank you for your support. See you next time.